Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Our guest this week is Luis Javier Rodriguez. He has 16 books in all genres, including eight in poetry. His latest poetry book is Borrowed Bones, 2016, Curbstone Books, Northwestern University Press. He is an award-winning writer and poet and is the founding editor of Dia Chucha Press. For 40 years, he's done poetry readings, talks, and healing circles, as well as creative writing workshops in prisons, jails, and juvenile lockups. From 2014 through 2016, he served as Los Angeles's official poet laureate. Hi, today's guest is Luis Javier Rodriguez, a well-known poet, and I am so honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you, Sonia, for having me. It's always an honor for me to interview you. Now we're going to be discussing the poem, Make a Poem Cry. Can you read us the poem so that when we ask the questions, the audience knows? Yes. And um, this is a new poem in that it's never been published in any of my books. I am so honored that way. We get to hear it here first. Here and, uh, and it comes from the work I did in prisons, we'll talk about later. But let me read the poem. It's called uh, Make a Poem Cry. And it starts with a, a line from one of the poets that I worked with. He was actually in my classes. I do creative writing, teaching in prison. And I've been going to prison for 40 years. Long time I've been doing this work. His line goes, his name is Jimmy McMillan, one of my students, and his line goes, I can't see him coming from my eye, so I had to make this poem cry. And it goes like this. You can chain the body, the face, the eyes. The way hands move coarsely over cement or deftly on tattooed skin with needle. You can cage the withered membrane, the withered dream, the way razor wire shouts, yells, and batons can wither spirit. But how can you imprison a poem? How can a melody be locked up, locked down? Yes, even caged birds sing. Even grass sprouts through asphalt. Even a flower blooms in a desert. And the gardens of trauma we call the incarcerated can also spring with the vitality of a deep thought and emotion buried beneath the facades. Deep as rage, deep as grief the grief beneath all rages. The blood of such poems, songs, emotions, thoughts, dances are what flow in all art, stages, films, books. The keys to liberation are in the heart, in the mind, behind the cranial sky. The imagination is boundless, the inexhaustible in any imprisoned system. And remember, we are all in some kind of prison. If only the contrived freedoms society professes can flow from such water. Absolutely beautiful. I read this poem and I'm like, it gets to the core in a way that we all can understand it. That's the key to, I think to, you know, poetry can be multi-layered and hard to read. It can be very academic. I read all that stuff. I get it. It's an art. But what I really like is what Amanda Gorman did when she read that poetry, President Biden's inauguration. I know she can do, I know her. She's an LA poet. We know each other. She can do very complicated work. Really important, but she has this ability to also find work that's pleasurable for a lot of people, and that's what I like to do as well. Poetry that has something powerful to say has a 
maybe a, an artful way of saying it, but it's also anybody can get it. To me, that that's important for me. Because a, a lot of poetry I find is cerebral. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm a poet myself, but I go back and read some of my stuff. I'm like, what the heck was I saying? And, you know, it's a good thing to do sometimes, yeah. But this poem, it's, tell us about your prison project. So what happened is, I, really quickly, as some of you know, I was a very troubled young man. I was in a gang. I was on heroin for seven years. I was in and out of jails, juvenile hall, and I was in two adult facilities. I'm a formerly incarcerated person. But luckily for me, and I really think this is a blessing, I had a mentor who came out of the movimiento, the movement of the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s in LA, which got very big. LA, the Chicanos had did the first walkouts of high school students that were now do it on a regular basis, but we were the first ones to walk out. I was 13 years old when I walked out. At 16, we were the first community of color to go against the Vietnam War, a massive protest, 30,000 people. And I got arrested during that whole thing and was put in murder's row. And there was three people killed during the whole stuff. And they were trying to get me for these murders. Three people that I didn't do it. The police actually killed, killed them. But it didn't matter. They were going to try to charge me with it. it. Eventually, I got through all that. I was arrested for attempted murder and I did shoot somebody. I was pretty bad shape. But this mentor gave me a vision of a new world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He told me about the movement and the community. And he was trying to tell me, you've got to get off drugs. Drugs is a, is a prison. You got to get off the gang. The gang is just holding you down. You got to live your life fully. And it was a great dream that he gave me. And it was a hard dream. And there was times that I couldn't quite meet it. Sometimes I wanted to go back. Sometimes I wanted to give up. But I kept at it. I kept moving in that direction. After all these years, 45, 50 years that I've left that life, those words stayed with me. And I've been carrying them with me ever since. Eventually, I ended up being a writer because I, like you, probably I started doing poetry on my own. I used to do it in jail, juvenile hall. I used to love reading, by the way. Mm -hmm. Unlike all my homies, nobody in my family loved books. I love books. Books were my best friends, you know? And so that was a big, good, good thing that I loved to read. I was like the weird homie that used to bring books in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, people tried to make fun of me, but I was, you know, heavy duty gangsters and they weren't going to mess with me. But I love books. It saved my life. So I, I want to say that to say that when I got to be about 25 years old, I had left jail the last time. I was young. I did get you know, convicted, but I walked out and I promised never to go back. I had my first heroin withdrawals in the county jail, which is very difficult, especially when you got the prison gang, you got all the heroin, heroin's everywhere. You can, and I made a decision. Well, I walked out and I says, I'm done. But then I thought, I'm okay. I got a job. I got married. My kids, I had two beautiful kids. They changed my life. Having my kids, I never go back to and stuff. But I was worried about my homies that didn't make it. So many of my friends killed and or in jail or heroin addicts. At one point in my neighborhood, every person in the gang became a heroin addict. Everyone. Not one was able to get away from it. So I said, I'm going to go back. I want to help. I went to Chino Prison in California and started a creative writing class. Now, I had to get permission. Obviously, the most guards didn't care for it. I had a staff in the prison that says, we want to try this. I did it with an, another guy who mentored me in that work. We did this creative writing class, and I got hooked. And at first, when I went to the prison, I got that flashback because I would go through the bars and the, the noise. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to keep me here. <laughs> they got me now. They're not going to let me go. You know, you start having this paranoia. Yeah. But I went through it and I walked out and I kept going back and forth. And then after those classes were done, I would go to prisons to do poetry readings, talks, healing circles. I did it all over California. I ended up doing it about 20 states. Uh, when I moved to Chicago, we talked about Chicago. I lived there 15 years. I worked in Illinois prisons, juvenile facilities. I went to the big juvenile detention center in downtown 
Chicago, which is at the time was the largest juvenile lockup in the world, I think. So I did all this work. I've been doing it ever since. I just got out of um, not going to prisons because of the pandemic. There's no in-person instruction. Otherwise, I would still be there. My last classes were at a high security prison an hour from my house uh, here in the LA area. So I love this work. I'm sad that the pandemic has kept us out. So I wanted to do this poem to kind of honor those voices, honor this guy, Jimmy McMillan, is one of these homies from Oakland, kid who murdered somebody right now. He's not getting, never getting out of prison. Uh, oh. He does amazing poetry. He's such a great poet, and his soul is so beautiful, and I'm, I wanted to honor people like him in the prisons. You see of the intention of it, and also the perception of, like, you can't get out of that life. You find that it keeps drawing you back, but it's where you're comfortable. It's what you know. Yeah. One thing you should, and I'm uh -huh. sure you know, I'll let your audience know, as my oldest son, as we talked earlier, did end up in a gang in Chicago. And this is the saddest thing. I didn't want that for him. Whatever I went to, I never wanted my son. I have four kids, three boys. And, you know, you can lose boys easily. Yeah. And girls, too. They're not in, immune from it. But my son got taken, and it was a humble park. Puerto Rican gang, homies from the neighborhood. I knew these kids, but he got swept up and he got into it. And he started going to prisons at age 17. And Eva was in a psychiatric hospital for three months that didn't help him. I thought it was going to help him. Yeah. They, they were terrible. Was, you know, these hospitals, these psychiatric treatment hospitals for the poor gente is bad. Yeah. That's terrible. But anyway, he ended up going to prison for close to 15 years, 13 and a half years, the last stretch, all in Illinois. And this is a sad part. This is how, in many ways, the gang life, the body, the madness called me back. That's my second memoir. It's, it's titled, It Calls You Back. I got called back, but one of them called my son. And it took many, many years while he was in prison to help him gather himself, to help him with his life. Uh, he's been out now for 10 years, and he moved from Chicago to, he lives with us now. He's doing very good. He's 40, he'll be 46 this year. He's uh -huh. got three kids and five grandkids. Wow. So I have five great grandkids because of him. So well, congratulations, though. Yeah. But so he's doing good. After 10 years, he's clean and sober, gang-free, crime-free. He's working. He's trying to make the most. It isn't easy for people to come out of prison. It's so hard to re-entry, so hard to get your life. He had a lot of trouble. We tried to help him. I'm really glad to say that right now, he seems to be very focused on his work, but also on his grandkids. Not his own kids, because they're almost they're too old now, but his grandkids, he's, he's trying to help them as much as Because you figure that when you're in prison for that long, that the world is, is changing while you're in there. And I'm assuming that you would just come out thinking the world was the same when you went in. Absolutely. And it changes. The other thing that happens, their emotional development is held back. It's arrested development. He started going to prison, like I said, at 17. He went through almost all his 20s. He got out at 35. He did have a period where he wasn't in prison, but he ended up going back. They basically raised him. His yeah. development was held. And he had he was very smart. He knew a lot of things, but he had emotional issues. He didn't grow up emotionally. So then yeah. we work on that. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's hard a lot of work. Prison, yeah, and not be developed that way. It's just, that's what prisons do. They don't really help with that kind of work. Right, well, they don't prepare you to leave. That's exactly right. They, that they, they, leave, they, they leave you there. And it's the sad thing about gangs because it's normally a minority against another minority. It's their own people. You know, when I was in the gang, I never thought about it. I always took it about, these are my enemies. They killed my homies. I killed them. It was that kind of world. But then the political orientation that I got at the time was we're playing into somebody else's plan. Somebody else came up with this. We're killing our own people when we need to unite, get organized, bring justice and changes. It was helpful for me because some people didn't go for that, but a lot of people did. You know, in that time, as you recall, 
the Black Panthers, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, there were so much organizations. They were pulling in gang kids, kids that were trouble. They were joining movements. And of course, the government went after everybody. But a lot of those gang kids like me got saved. We got a purpose. And some of us have carried it, have carried it all these years. Others went off and just got married, had kids, and that's fine. I wanted to be active. I've been active ever since. That's what I think is important. People want to down those movements. They were very important for young men like me, young women and men like me. And I, I really felt they have a purpose because if you don't go through what you went through, you wouldn't be helping the community like you are now. Exactly. We become these wounded healers. Yes. Uh, because we've And that's been, so beautiful. Yeah. We've been there. We can help other kids so that they don't get caught up in it. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Now I train people coming out of prisons to help them help others. And yes. my son is helping part of that work too. Well, see, I think that that to me is so important because there's been studies that we have at least 6,000 thoughts a day and that about Besides the ones about having to eat or whatever, about 75% of them, I think is the number that are negative thoughts. So that's why I've come across people say it's so hard to change. Well, yeah, yeah, because you're used to telling yourself you're comfortable in the negative thoughts you've told yourself your whole entire life. So changing that is a major challenge. Great insight, Sonia. I really appreciate that. I I always tell people that trauma puts you in a prison, whether you're in prison It imprisons you with the trauma. The trauma revisits you. The voices that say you're no good, that whatever pain you went through, it carries you through a lot of things. And you end up, as somebody once told me, because I was an addict for seven years, and then I, I drank for 20 years on top of it. The good news is I've been sober for going on, I'll be going on 28 years this year. So, wow, congratulations. But for 27 years, I was really lost in that kind of addiction. And then somebody gave me this great insight. Addicts are really addicted to misery. And I thought about it for a long time because I was miserable as an addict. I was miserable as an alcoholic. I was miserable. And I yet they said, well, you know what happens to trauma, whatever your life was? You get comfortable in that pain that pretty soon you can't think or even imagine moving away from it. You're in that misery and you, you're really addicted to the misery and all the alcohol and all that just keeps you, all the drugs just keeps you in that grinding thing. And it makes it even worse because now you think about it even more. Yeah. And change is scary. When somebody says you're going to change, you don't want to change. No, it's too hard. Exactly. It's too hard. I mean, I've had to do a lot of self-reflecting on myself. And I think growing up poor, like most of the people that you don't have value. That's Exactly right. Because it's like, well, why am I, why is my life so hard? Why am I being punished? Exactly. And then we punish ourselves, right? Even more because yeah, of it. Powerful. That's powerful. And I think that's really important. Yeah. It's that's that's something. Self-acceptance. Nobody is perfect. No, of course. Yeah. I mean, we all have demons we have to deal with or situations in our life that are difficult. It's how we handle it and that we makes the difference. The capacity we have not only for change, but to be a better person. And that's what I hope teach in these prison classes. I use writing, but writing to me isn't about being a good writer so much as being a better human being. You use oh, writing so beautifully. to teach yeah. yourself to have a place to express, to shape words and language and voice so that your story can be told. And I, I try to help because I know that it's about their own lives, their own transformative creative capacity that can help them go through things. And I work with a lot of prisoners and I've seen, I'm, I'm talking about murders. I'm talking about, I'm talking, I'm in high security prisons. I'm not in, I actually have been low security and juvenile facilities, but I've been in these high, and I'm talking with guys who've been in prison 30, 40 years who have murdered people and they want to change and they want how to do it. You know, I said, oh, well, give us the tools. Oh, well, well, what? And that's what I do. I provide tools, connections, and resources. Not that I save them so they can save themselves. So that's, they're looking for redemption in the writing. Absolutely. 
that, that's why that poem and why I honor this poet, that's what they're looking for. Yeah, because I have noticed that, you know, I think we're a fear-based society and then we're brought up to react a certain way because I think if we were not fearful, we wouldn't be fighting. I think you're right. Fear is what, the, I think I look at it this way and I'm sure you see it. The powers that be, whoever they are, take advantage of that. Feel vulnerable. They feel, they don't feel strong, even though they might act that way. And fear keeps them hiding from their, their own truths. And I think people who have power like to use that. They like to bring that in. They like us all to be scared of, of things and each other and what's going to happen. And real knowledge, as you know, is power. Real knowledge is I I don't have to be afraid because I know stuff. That's and you don't have to control people. Yeah. If you have your own power, they're also coming from a fear-based mentality. That if I allow you to have power, that means I have to lose power. I had a, a woman so that, you know, she just came up to me and she said, oh my God, we're having all this border stuff and the, the people are taking over. And I'm like, what is there? Is there fighting on the border that I don't know about? And she says, no, are you talking about equality? And she said, yes. I'm like, I'm a minority. I want to be respected, be equally paid, all of that. And I don't want to take over anything. Right. Because I have equality doesn't mean that you lose power. If anything, we should be working together. I was really surprised. That was the first time I actually experienced it in person. You know what that comes from is I think it's the, the capitalist system, the way we, we live is based on scarcity. There's not enough for everybody. Oh, but I okay. think that's an imposed thing. Mm -hmm. uh, in nature, there really is enough. If you work properly with nature, there's abundance. Of course, if there's you a ton of abundance, yes. If you tear up nature, it ain't going to be there. But if you work properly with its rules and laws, and you, it, there's, abundance, there's abundance, you know how to do it. But our society is based on there's not enough for everyone. It's a imposed scarcity, and we fall into it. I think even the gang stuff is all in there. Why are we fighting with other gangs that are just like us, other neighborhoods? Like you're competing against what? Turf? That's a goofy thing to compete. Then drugs comes in. You're competing for who's going to make money off the drugs. Like we're constantly competing, and in a gang world, you're killing people. I mean, I can compete in a job, and maybe I'm going to try to be better than the next person, but. In the gang world, it ain't about that. It's about, I got to kill the people who are competing with me. That's wow. the nature of that world. And I think it's scarcity. They scared us with thinking we don't got enough for everybody. And, you know, poverty, as you know, I don't think needs to exist. There's no basis to it keep existing except the way the system is set up. That's the only reason it exists. And the way you're brought up to think is like, well, we don't have enough. There's no money for shoes. There's no money for food. There's no money for this. So you keep thinking there's no money, but there can be. Yeah. My group, my family, my mother, I love my mother. She's gone, but she's like all these uh, gente, you know, people who, man, counting pennies. It's, you know, she used to do, um, you don't remember the screen stamps? I don't know if you Yes. Oh, SNH green stamps. Green stamps. That was her thing. She had <laughs> events. She had us all little kids licking them yes. and, go <laughs> and get stuff she was coupons she did everything that she could to save my money. mom did the same thing it's hysterical <laughs> that was that's the kind of strategies when you're poor and then and my mom was very poor but one thing about her she was always clean we never lived in a dirty house we didn't have nothing and she was always clean and she was always thrifty and my mm -hmm. mom would do something else i had to talk about this she would go around picking up broken furniture fix it and she was good she, she used to be a seamstress so uh -huh. she stole the cover and then she would sell it or even give it to her neighbors sometimes she would just give it to people but she would try to sell it she tried to make the more ends meet she didn't go to crime she didn't do anything other, but she was working really hard and that i think is what happens to us but then again why because somebody says we're poor and we can't got enough 
and we either cave into it and completely stay poor or you try to survive like your parents did, like my parents, my mom had to do. That to yeah. me, by the way, I don't want to not talk about my dad, but my dad, unfortunately, was one of these dads that was emotionally detached. So my mom carried all the burden. She, he didn't raise the kids. He came home, unlike a lot of fathers. I almost wish he didn't come home. You know, like, <laughs> who needs this guy? He would come. He worked hard, come home. He worked as a janitor. He was custodian. He got, you know, finally, but he retired as a custodian. But he ended up going home. I don't want to be bothered, you know, and... My mom carried the burden. She was always uh, frustrated with him, but he didn't, you handle it, you do this. It was sad. My mom carried everything. And to her credit, she tried to do the best she can. She lost me. She lost one kid. She tried to keep my other brothers and sisters in line. And then the only reason she threw me out, and I don't blame her one bit, because she mm-hmm. didn't want to poison my brothers and sisters. I totally get it. She says, you know what? If you're going to be in that world, drugs, I was bad shape, and the gangs get out. I accept it. I just, I couldn't even cry about it because it was almost like my, my mom's right. I should hear, you know, it was almost like, oh, what am I crying about? You know, sometimes you feel bad, you feel lonely and you think, oh, my mom, she threw me out. But you think, stop and think, dude, you know, what do you expect? You know, I get it. And But I always love my mom for having tried and worked hard at it. I think that's an era that they came from, that the father was a provider and the mother took care of the house and the kids. That's exactly the setup, right? Yeah. And, and But men, if they were very fatherly, they were considered unmanly. I totally agree. It wasn't. Yeah, un- they I, I remember my dad, he's a little guy, but he doesn't get angry outright. He gets angry. He says something, but man, his words have such strength in them that you were like, okay. My dad was the same thing. He wouldn't really get mad, but he was the today, you know, he, whatever he said that went, you know, my mom yeah, would exactly. screaming. She would throw the chunk at us. He would do it. You know, my poor mom, my, my, my dad, he was like, he wouldn't really get mad, but you just didn't do what he didn't do. So yeah, those uh, infamous chanclas. I know. I, know. <laughs> I think every Latin parent uses those. I want to go back and discuss this beautiful poem. Yeah, yes, let's do that. One of the I, I found some lines that I really felt they really talked to me. Withered membrane, weathered dream, and weathered spirit. Does this pertain to the hopelessness in prisons? And if so, how have you seen that with the population? You know, what I think these prisons do is take your spirit away. It's to the credit of a lot of these men and women in prison that many of them hang on to it. One of the ways they hang on to it by writing, by doing art, by, by doing other things. Most of them, their spirit is gone. Their spirit to live, to think about life, to think about anything. They're just going by the motions just to get by. It's very dispiriting when you walk in there. And so that's what I mean is that the prison is not helping develop your humanity, your strength as a human being. It's actually helping to diminish it and by the punishment, the yelling and screaming, telling what to do, when to do it. And I think that's why I mentioned the withered, the withered dream, you know, the withered hopes, everything. And then you come in there like I come in there. I have to try to rebuild that connecting to their humanity again, their imaginations, their creative capacities to their humanity. Some of them are so like we talk about dad being cold and withdrawn. You think about these guys, they're complete. They can't be, they can't speak. They gotta be vulnerable. They can't be vulnerable. They have to hide their feelings. In prison, you can't have a facade. It has to be really tough. You know, people can see they can you pretenders don't last, you know. Yeah. But if you're really tough, you have to still hide the sensitive part of you. And they become muted, mutated. They're not fully human. They're mutated men and women. That's what I think that part of the poem is. And the spirit is the only thing you really own. So if if they kill your spirit, it's your hope. Then the hope goes with the spirit. And the spirit is the only thing that is you, that is only yours. And so when your spirit is killed, then you give away your power. You have no power. 
there's what I call the walking dead. Then, uh, and of course those TV shows, they call them zombies. But to me, the meta zombies are a metaphor for what happens in our culture, in our world. People are taking up space, they're working, but their spirits are gone. I, and I would tell you, going back to my dad, his spirit was gone. He didn't have no, he was just, he didn't have no spirit. He didn't have no spirit to father us. He didn't have no spirit to be a decent husband. I mean, he never hurt my mom, but he was cold. He was in no intimacy. You know what I'm saying? His spirit was gone. It was broken. Whatever happened in his life, he just worked, came home. Just Do you fun. think that maybe biased behaviors at work and how he was treated was like he had enough and when he wants to go home, he, he wants that's, to just... Very true. I was... Um, one time I went and he was at a custodian at a community college. At mm -hmm. the time, these colleges were not where people of color. They were all white at the time. He was a custodian there. And one time I went over there because my dad was trying to help me. I was in so much trouble. And he thought if I went with him every morning and maybe go to the local high school, uh, I might get better. It, it was actually worse for me. But one of the things I noticed is my dad was talked down to by professors. He was a one Mexican brown guy walking around with his cart, you know, and they would scream at you, you didn't clean this right. And I witnessed that. And my dad was not that way at home. You know, he was like, look at look, your digo is look at But he goes to work and they're yelling and screaming at him and he's holding like almost his hat in his hand. Okay, sorry, si, 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 senor. I was so angry to see this, that my dad was so taken down by these powerful people. Mm -hmm. They weren't really powerful, but they gave him that power and he went along because he needed a job. He needed to work. What's he going to do? Argue with them? They go fire him in five minutes. Yeah. So I took it really badly. And I think you're right. Enough discrimination, enough being put down the much, like you say, not being valued. After a while, your spirit dies and you're just taking up space. You don't have no more hope, no more dreams. And unfortunately, that's too many of these people. Yeah, my dad went the same thing. He went to Chicago in the 50s and he's a little dark man. Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, and he didn't speak a word of English. So he went through so much. And I don't, I have such compassion for my dad. Yeah, I think you're right in doing that. And one of the things about me is I'm the same way. We didn't speak English at home. No, uh, yeah, we didn't either. Mom and dad, and, and some, sometimes they insist speak English or you can, you're in this country. My mom and dad don't speak it at home. I want to hear you. And so I became bilingual, not because the schools taught it, because there was no bilingual education in schools. We were punished for speaking Spanish in the schools. It was awful, but it, okay. So I learned English, but I had to, which I give credit to my parents, that I kept Spanish only because they forced us to keep speaking Spanish. And I'm really glad. But my dad had a hard time with English. You know, some people get it. My dad couldn't do it. He was having such a heart, he could never do it. 50 years they were in this country, more than 50 years before they died. Never learned English. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's that's hard because you have to communicate. And that's why I find that people that come here that don't speak English, they go to the neighborhoods where there's people of their own kind. Because and then everybody's like, well, why don't you express? And go, you don't know the language. You want to know, be around people that you're familiar with. You can from there, you could take the next step. And people will put you down for it. So it's like, why? Why? You know, no, I, you have the same experiences as I did. And that's sad. And I feel that you're right. You have to have compassion for your parents. I, I always had issues with them, but as I grown up, I got older, I realized, man, I got to give it to them. They were trying really hard against great odds. Especially, yeah, the 50s. I mean, oh, yeah, that was like a height of major racism. That's why we got sick. The 60s happened. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> How can you imprison a poem versus not imprisoning a poem? Well, you know, I, that's a question I ask because what happens in prisons for a lot of these men and women they find their art they didn't know they had. And I think a lot of it's because they were probably some of the most artistic people in these neighborhoods, but nobody had time for them. They couldn't fit into the schooling world 
which is another way of saying they couldn't fit in the work world, but somebody tell them what to do. But and like other communities where if you're an artist that give you free sources and you can develop it, they have none. So you go to prisons, you realize, man, that's a lot of artists and creative people in prisons. And of course, they're being contained. But then I work with people who on their own in their cells start writing. So they come to my class 30, 40 years in prison with sometimes whole plays, scripts for movies, novels. They can, they're never going to get them published, you know, but the point is they do that. Some of them are artists. They do paintings, as you know. Some of them pick up a guitar somehow and they learn music. They can learn a lot. The few that actually get to that point, a lot of people just can't do it, you know. But I find that that's what I mean. Can you really imprison a poem? Because even if they're imprisoned, their poems don't have to be. Their verses don't have to be. Their words, their music doesn't have to be. That's really what I'm questioning. And that's where their humanity pops up, even inside barbed wire. You know, their humanity still is there. What I say about the liberation in poetry is that it's a form that gives you permission to be. You're going to get people that are hating it or like it. You, you don't care. It's very subjective. But it just gives you permission. It's not like writing a story that needs to be, you know, beginning, middle and end. And it has to be written a certain way. And but poetry, it, I think it's beautiful when someone just opens up. If you're thinking, oh, I got to write for 20,000 people. No, no. If it's pleasing to you, write for you. And generally, if it's really good and you get good at the language, it'll be pleasing to others. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Yes. But the key is to make sure that you're in it and it's you and you love it. And uh, you really don't care what other people think, but you're telling your truth, telling your story. And then, and I say, if you get really good at it, guess what? Other people will like it too. It's just the yes. main thing is you got to be, it's my, this is my work. Some of that work isn't going to get published. Some of it, nobody's going to like, that's fine. It's still what you write about. Yeah. And it's coming from your soul. Gardens of trauma. Do you feel that most of the people within the prison systems that got them into that situation and they reacted? But I really like that gardens of trauma. There's two contradictory words there. But one of the reasons why is because I do believe that they're highly traumatized people in these prisons. They're generally, and they've done studies, they generally find that they're the ones that have been abused at home and or abused in their, in their neighborhoods, whatever. There's a lot of abuse at some level. They end up in the prisons, but instead of being helped, treated, giving whatever they need, they're punished. And so the trauma gets added on. Prisons become a traumatic experience for traumatized people. Uh, and again, if you had money and, and you had some connections or whatever, you can get the proper mental health care. You can get all the treatment you need. You don't need prisons. But for poor people, prisons is the way you treat our traumas. And this is why I, why I call them gardens, though, is out of those traumas can flow beautiful flowers. Beautiful things can blossom if you understand it, if you understand why you're traumatized, where it's going, what it's trying to take you. And that's when I'm saying that there's, uh, I have a line in another poem that says, who knows from what polluted soils my blossoms will spring. Sometimes it's the very depth of their pain that they can bring in the pleasure and the joy and the world view. If they got pain, they can't escape it. That's what drugs does. That's what alcohol does. They need to get to it and understand where is it taking them. And that's why I call it gardens of trauma because out of these places could flow and blossom some beautiful work. How do you handle people that say, well, it's jail, they, that they should be punished instead of rehabilitated because then those are the same people that say, oh, they let them out of prison early and now they started again because nobody rehabilitated them in jail. So now you have to release them because, I mean, let's face it, if there's budget cuts, you're going to get released. You know what? That's such a powerful uh, question. And I've actually had people come to me. Generally, it's been white people with money who come and say, why do you do this? This should be fun. And I tell them, listen, these people aren't coming back to your neighborhood. They're coming back to mine. 
And if they come back all messed up, because in all the years, like my son, you didn't do anything to help them. You didn't give them any help, redemption, any tools, any resources. You didn't educate them. You didn't do it. You're endangering me. They're not coming back to yours because they find ways to get out of prisons, jails. You know, mm-hmm. it's very rarely that some moneyed white community is going to have somebody in prison. All the white people in prisons are generally poor whites. You know what I'm yes. saying? So it's like, this is what happens to poor people, black, white, brown. We all get caught up in that. But I tell them, they're coming back to my community. I'm demanding that if we're going to use tax dollars, please don't bring them back broken. I get they got in broken. I get it. You know, mm-hmm. whatever how they got there, they did something. There should be consequences. Nobody, life is consequences. But the consequences have to include healing, have to include redemptive qualities, redemptive practices, have to include that. That's to me one of the consequences. It's bad enough that you have to remove them from their families, remove them from the world. Okay, fine. But then do something meaningful with them. I've convinced a lot of people when I get that talk, but the politics of the world is still in that old way of thinking. Punish them, they did wrong, punishment. They did wrong, punishment, there is no way around it. But I go, yeah, but you're punishing and punishing, and then they come out and guess what, they punish us. Instead of coming back with knowledge and awareness to bless our community with what they've learned, they come back with all their pains and more trauma and they curse our community. I tell them that. When you're angry, you can't hurt another person enough to feel good. Oh, that's right. Absolutely. And I think that that's what is is going on because now they're angry and nobody to help them. So they feel abandoned and there's nothing to cause more pain and havoc than someone that feels abandoned. And like they say, hurt people, hurt people. When they're hurt, they end up hurting others. And again, it doesn't excuse anybody. But on the other hand, where's our excuse for letting these, abandoning these people, not doing what needs to be done? Some of them are in prison for 30, 40 years with nothing. What do you expect this person to do? And in spite of that, just to be clear, because I've been going to prisons, beautiful Mm -hmm. human beings come out of those situations. In spite of all that punishment and pain and deprivation, I have met some of the best human beings ever in prisons. They're spirits who are still there. Again, it's not as many as you would like. And there's wonderful people that come out of prisons. They are not what everybody thinks it is. And yet we still have this problem of why don't we give them what they need so they can better themselves as human beings, give them tools, whatever they need. And they come back and become an asset, not a deficit. That seems to make sense to me. Tax dollars, why? Some of those guys, as you know, come in there kind of criminals. By the time they come out, they're super criminals. They know how to be great. <laughs> tax dollars trained them to be great. Yeah, to be worse. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, what good is that? Our tax dollars is a school for criminality. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Why do, why do we allow that? Now, well, we punish it out. Okay, no, no, no. You started off wrong. Yeah, okay, now they're real criminals. You're going to punish them again? I mean, you're making it worse. It's it's weird how people think about this stuff. What do you think about the philosophy that when they do get out after so many years of jail, they actually commit crimes to go back to jail because that's what they know? That is a big thing that I have seen over and over again. They call it recidivism, which is very high, especially in these poor communities. And what it is, it has to do with the fact that if you spend many years in prison, okay, there was a guy who did 23 years for heroin. It wasn't a murder. He wasn't a- Oh my God, for heroin? Yeah, you know, he's stealing 23 years constant. And he was in Watts and I met him in one of my first classes. He became a friend. He died. But anyway, he got out after 23 years. And so I kind of followed him around, helped him out. In six months, he was back in the county jail. And I went to see him. I go, dude, his name was John. John Dominguez, I remember the name. I don't mind because his family reached out to me. I mentioned him in one of my books. He used to call him El Bandido, the bandit. He was from Watts and he grew up in really poor places. He's, he said he had a daughter. He said, I came out of prison. He goes, it was awful. I couldn't get a job. 
people treated me badly. My daughter didn't want anything to do with me. I had no reason to live in freedom. He says, freedom to me was not free. I was felt more caught and imprisoned and more vulnerable, more, more nowhere outside. He says, I wanted to go back to prison because I know prison. I understand prison. I get all the politics, the protocols. Prison is home to me. This is what you do when you keep people 23 years, you know. Prison was for heroin. For heroin, which could be treated. I mean, one thing that I, I worked with murderers and but this guy wasn't even like one of those guys. He was he was burglarizing just to get his habit. You know, he was he never yeah. nobody, but he did hurt himself and obviously he was hurting family and everybody. But his whole thing was I get prison is familiar. I get prison. I go out in the world, I don't get it. It doesn't get me. So he went back to heroin, got caught up, parole violation, went back to prison. He eventually did many more years and got died, I think, in prison. He died in prison. I heard it from his family. It's sad. It's kind of one of these things where we set these men and women up. We set them up to fail when we don't do the world proper work. And it makes sense to me. I don't want to excuse it. It's terrible. I mean, you got out of prison, dude. Come on, do some good. But there's nothing there for them. Nobody wants they to They can't hire. survive. Yeah. Just to- if you think about it, if he can't find a job, he can't even survive. How is he going to, how is he going to get a place to live? How is he going to do anything if he can't support himself? And then families, unfortunately, my son used to tell me that he really appreciated that our family stayed in touch with him for all the years he was in prison. No matter what, he says, he finally told me when when he was in prison, he says, you know, I really appreciate this now because you don't know how many guys here don't have no more family. People have abandoned them. They've been in prison too long. He says, nobody contacts them. A lot of them. They don't have any. And when he had one cell, he was pissed off at him because he was getting all these letters from family. And this guy was pissed off at him. Why are you getting all this? And he knew why. It's because this poor guy, nobody writes him. And he says that was one of the things that helped him, that we kept loving him, in touch with him. We never condoned what he had done. He actually did some terrible things. He shot somebody, ended up trying to shoot at two police officers. We don't condone that. Yeah, I mean, it was awful. A police officer didn't get hit, thank God, because he would have stayed in prison forever. But he did shoot somebody. And by the way, the guy he shot wasn't even a gangster. It was a road rage thing. It was a poor guy in a truck. And the guy was so angry when he got out because he almost died. We were worried that he was going to die. And mm-hmm. he came to the court. But when he saw us and the family and he saw all the community there, he wasn't with the cop side of the court. He went over to our side. And then oh, wow. I, and I apologized to him for my son. Look, at, I apologize. This is terrible. What happened to you? This is wrong. You should not have been shot. And he really loved that. And he said, you know what? I'm, I feel bad for, for him doing all this time, you know? I said, don't worry about it. This is what happened. So he joined us for the cops were all pissed off. They wanted to, they wanted my son to do 40 years to life in Illinois. Oh my God. You shoot a police officers, it's the one of the most serious things you could do, even if you don't hit them. And they were clamoring and he thought he was going to join in with them because he was all angry that my son had shot him. When when he realized what was going on, that we were actually the more decent people. The cops were so ugly, you know, and we were actually the ones that were more decent. We had circles of prayer outside. We were all doing this really good stuff. And he was like, man, I'm, I'm joining you guys. You know, <laughs> guy, I felt bad for him because he suffered a lot. You know, he almost didn't make it, you know. But I'm sure he doesn't have road rage like he used to. No, no, I'm glad. I'm glad that he, he needed, I hate to say, say this, he didn't need to be shot. He needed to know, keep his mouth shut. Because, you know, my son was a gang and he was two gang guys and they're driving and he He's a truck driver and he gets pissed off because they did something. He's yelling and screaming and calling them out. You don't do that. Now, we most people. You know, you're, you're safe. You didn't crash. You didn't do anything. Nothing happened. But he and he messed with the wrong guys, which is sad. I hate for my son to be the wrong guy. My son didn't yeah. think twice about it. You Are you kidding me? He got, got his gun from the glove compartment, got out of the car and calmly went up on top of the truck and shot the guy. That's messed up. 
but you're messing with gang guys. You're messing with these guys who are all triggered, you know. And he didn't, my son was mad, but he was more like, are you kidding me? You know, like, man, we can shoot people like you. This is terrible. And my son's changed a lot from there, by the way. I mean, that's if you take that incident, you can say, oh, my son, he deserved 40 years to life. What a terrible thing. But it really was the change that even he's been through. My son is not that way now. My son has his issues, but he will never hurt anybody. He's, I seen him, he was an Uber driver for a while before they stopped allowing felons to do that. He was doing so well, but he was the best Uber driver. People said he was talkative, you know, Chicago talkative, you know, he loved people. He got along really good with everybody. And then they decided that felons can't work as Uber drivers and he, he lost a really good job. That's the nature of that kind of stuff. It was wrong what he did. It was wrong that this guy called him on. You know, hey man, things happen. You know, hey man, everybody's okay. Nobody got hit. Let's move on. No, he... But he didn't deserve to be shot. I've seen that. And even someone like me, who's not triggered to do anything like that, you do get defensive when someone talks down to you like you have no value. That's what happens. And my son was that kind of person. He was going to get triggered. And he was. He told me, Dad, it's really weird that I got all this time for something that had nothing to do with gangs. <laughs> he wasn't, <laughs> wasn't robbing nobody. He had robbed people. He'd done some things. He'd done prison time before. And he, but I said, it was just this guy, you know? calling me out the way he did and whatever i don't know exactly what he said whatever he said was offensive to my son you know and he's talking mm -hmm. to heavy duty gangsters his buddy in the car was one of the leaders from cabrini well he wasn't from green but he was um well in the puerto rican gang there was one like a lieutenant yeah he was running things but he's black in this puerto rican gang the head of the gang one of the mean king leaders was this black guy and my son who was from Me who was mexican so this uh -huh. Puerto Rican gang was really great people, a lot of Puerto Ricans, good people, some dangerous people, but they were, the Mexican and the black guy were calling shots, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of, <laughs> you know, and they got along very well. And he had done prison time. He's he's now, uh, this kid that was with my son is doing very well now, but he ended up doing prison time for other stuff. He's changed his life. We work with him, but he was a really big black guy and he was hardcore and him and my son, they were both hardcore gangsters and they've changed their life by the way they got kids and they're everything's changed but it was that kind of world and you know how it is in chicago or la when there's big gangs you got to know don't mess with people <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you don't anyway you know. and you have to really have respect you got to when you say the blood of such poems i saw a special with the inmates and how they do choirs and i thought the voices these men have were unbelievable. And it made me think of what you're doing with the poetry. Do you guys work together with that? Or is that part of the programs that you guys set up? How does that work? What I end up doing is I end up helping them shape their poetry in any way that they can. They learn, they do a lot of expressive work, work writing, but some of them also want stories. I do all genres, stories, plays, whatever. I help them shape it. Some of the guys actually they have also have a theater program in the prison. So what happens is sometimes they will write the play in my classes and then they will perform it. And there was a, a theater group we were working very closely where they actually started inviting outside people to come into the prison to watch their performances. So they were doing the writing in my class and then doing the performance in the theater class. And then they would come together. I would show up as the writing teacher and the, and the theater people would be there. And it would be these guys doing this amazing work. And so I love that. I love that they could do that and that there was a place in the prison for theater to be done. They were powerful. I mean, some of them can't act, so it's not about that. It's more about the expression, you know. So it was, I love that. It was really good. We were introducing these programmings when nobody wanted it. We did it on the slide. There had to be one staff that approved it, otherwise we couldn't get in. Generally, a warden 
if he's progressive or he or she is progressive enough, they might say, bring in programming. This one where the yard that I was in last in this high security prison was a general population yard that didn't have any programming. It had high murder rates, high alcoholism rate, drinking rate, pruno, you know, they had drugs everywhere, all run by the prison gang. The one main prison gang there was running everything. So I was one of the first ones they brought in to do programming. It was 2016, the first time they ever did programming in this yard. It was a dangerous yard. Mm -hmm. In two or three years, violence went down, drug use went down. Even the guards who didn't like me there became one or two became my friends. They said, you know what, well, this is actually good. This is actually working. They used to argue with me, oh, this, these guys will never change. These are hardcore. You know, I, why waste your time? That's what they were arguing with me. But we did it. And it wasn't just me. Other people came in, theater and other programs. Um, AA and A, a lot of other things came in. Uh, some Christian stuff, as well as schooling. Colleges came in to do schooling. And then I was in there doing my thing. It worked out really good. The guys in this hardcore yard, everything went down. And so just before the pandemic, they were pretty good shape about let's keep doing this the pandemic changed everything as you know nobody can get in the programs are not happening but it was really good we proved that it does change lives well you know what um i knew a prison guard they closed everything down in march he he was thinking because i think we got hit by the coronavirus in december he said we had some prisoners that came down with the flu some of them died they didn't even know as the prison guards was was going on Oh, it got really bad. As it wasn't out there. And it started, he says it started in December. Yeah, no. And uh, as you know, one point Cook County Jail was the ground zero for the worst cases. It's changed. And then the California prison system, San Quentin became COVID central. I mean, San Quentin, so many COVID cases and and lost like 60, 70 people. Uh, I think they said half of the population was had COVID. It got really bad. There's two to 3,000 people in this prison. So it's like, it got really bad in the prison system and, and it's all over. It's just not here, but in California, San Quentin became like, man, everybody was getting sick. And it was the policies of the prison, unfortunately, because they got guys that were sick in other prisons and somehow somebody had the notion, let's put them all in San Quentin. And San Quentin didn't have any cases, maybe one or two, maybe flus that people didn't know what it was. But once yeah. about these guys from other prisons that were sick, they spread it out. And then the staff got sick. And staff members would die, die too. So it's like, oh yeah. my God. So it's it, well, kind of a mess. Yeah. The keys to liberation are in the heart, in the mind behind the cranial sky. Well, I'm trying to say to these guys, because they're in prison, and sometimes their minds are also in prison. And I say, listen, you can't help but be in prison. I get it. You can see the, the gates. You can see the guards. You can see the towers. But your mind doesn't have to be in prison. Even in prison, you can free your mind. You know what I mean? Free your heart, mm-hmm. free your spirit. I say, this is what art does. That's really the point of this thing. All art allows you to be free in your, in your own way, writing, but also painting. There's guys doing theater, whatever it might be doing. All the art helps them become free in an unfree world. And that's what's important to me, why I do what I call transformative arts. You know, it's arts transform people. And I, when I say that all people are in prison in the poem, I mean that even if we're not behind bars, we have other prisons trauma prisons, alcoholic prisons, prisons of the example of society, women don't even do certain things, men get to be the reyes, whatever, you know, uh, there's all kinds of prisons that we create. The way to get through them is to find the liberation within yourself, the freedom within yourself to be who you are meant to be and work on that. And then nobody can really imprison you. You know what I'm saying? So mm. there are guys in- You always have their soul liberated. And, and, and if you got that, even bars cannot really imprison you. There's guys and women men and women who 
are not in prison while they're in prison. You know, I wish there was more of them, but there are a few yeah. that says, you know, I've been in prison. Some, I know some guys that are never getting out, but they're not, they're free. They tell me I'm a free man in prison because my mind is okay. My heart is good. And I'm doing all this art. So this helps uh, tremendously. It helps a lot. Now, do, does a lot of this art get out of the prison in order to, for people to buy or for people to see? Because I mean, I could, I could totally see when everything is a little bit back to normal to have art gallery showings of stuff like that. That is what's been happening. We were working on a number of those things. Again, the theater, they can't let them out, but people are now being allowed to come in, their families and maybe other people come in to see the theater pieces. Uh, there are galleries now putting forward prison art and selling them. And the prison oh, yeah. like that, but now they have an arrangement so that the guys and families can get the money. So they want to make sure that it doesn't just give money to people and then they use that money in a bunch of bad things. But there's ways of doing it. And then I, another thing that I did. So based on this poem that I had written, I decided to do an anthology of writing for my class. This is called, I don't know if you can see it, it looks backwards. It's called Make a Poem Cry. It's based on Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy McMillan's full poem is in here as well as Ooh. all these, um, these are just from my class, creative writing from California's Lancaster prison. This is just all from my class. And this is a book we published this so other people can get by it, can read the, their work, amazing work that we did. I Is that on uh, your publishing company? Yeah, so if you go to theachucha.org slash bookstore, you can get all my Thea Chucha Press books, which is my publishing company. We did it under that press, as well as other books that we sell, because we have a hopeful bookstore with all kinds of things. So Thea Chucha Press is, is the press that I created, and we did this beautiful book. The artwork was created by a guy in the, that was in the prison for an incarcerated guy. And now some of these guys are out, and I'm dealing with them. We have Zoom calls. Well, we were having Zoom calls with some of these guys. How? Just to help them out during the pandemic, because they got out and got in prison because of the pandemic. <laughs> They got a prison and they can't walk around. We try to help them. But this is another example of what you're saying. We can present their work. We can do it in art galleries. Uh, there's other ways that people can see that they're really creative people and they deserve some compensation proper to that quality of their work. And that's what I think it also opens up people's mind because you think, oh, they're bad. They're going to rob me. They're going to beat me up. They're going to try to kill me. And you can actually see the humanity in them. Yeah. When you have the artwork and the poetry and all the writing and whatever that their heart is really into. And if you want to make a living with it, that's better than robbing or drugs, whatever. And make a living doing your art. If people could give them an opportunity, some of these guys and women are extremely creative. They could be very helpful. I've met some amazing writers. They all should be working in, in the writing world. You know what I'm saying? Very few people give them the opportunities. But you know what I'm thinking? They want the opportunity to be in mainstream. Why don't they just create their own? Because what they do is extremely special. It's different. It's not what mainstream is. So we're trying to change ourselves to be mainstream. But yet, because I write poetry, I know it's not the best poetry, but it's coming from my heart. That makes it best. And I create my own. I really don't enter contests. I don't do any of that because I think that I also have a bicultural sense to my poetry that sometimes I don't think everybody understands. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. People, mainstream is one thing. Fame and all that stuff, it depends on so many, there's so many barriers to all these things, but there's no barrier to you creating your work, sharing it with your family and community. We build a bookstore based on the work of community. And we built a little culture center based on that. It's all creative stuff. We have a little art gallery of local artists. 
you know, it's not a big art gallery, but the local artists present their work and they even try to sell it. I mean, there's no art collectors there, which is sad, but we try to do what we can to help the community. There's not, it's not big, but some of them, who knows, they might make breakthroughs, but at least they've got community interested. They've got their families interested. You know how many families are happy to see a poet from one of their own family members that they thought was all messed up and lost and he's doing creative work. It's like, wow, we try to get this to all the families of all these guys that are still in there, you know, so there's a lot of ways to go. And I, I agree with you. Now, of course, if you want to go mainstream, fine, get the skills, get the knowledge, get, get to know people, but that's not the only option out there. No, no, I, I think that self-publishing became a wonderful thing for people to express who they are. Exactly. And that's an amazing way. There's one line that you say at the end, and remember, we are all in some kind of prison. Yeah. I love that line. Because it's so true. We self-imprison ourselves. And you know, it also says that to be judgmental of others. Okay, okay, they did some crime, somebody caught them, committed a crime, there's something to be consequences. But then we don't think that none of us are capable of being in prison, even in our own hearts, our own minds, of our own. We prison ourselves. We find the limitations in our lives. We find mm-hmm. ways to not be full in, in our living. And, and most people do that and they go, well, then we, we find our own prisons. And we can be judgmental for all these guys sitting behind there. And I guess somebody judged them already. But the point is, what about our, where we're at? I was in prison by drugs and alcohol. I had to deal with that. My son even tells me, I didn't do the, all those years. And I'm formerly incarcerated, but I didn't do all that years my son did. But he even says, but dad, you were probably in the worst prison because 27 years of being drugs and then drinking on top of it that's a hell of a prison and i don't know what that's like because he got out early on stuff he was heavy duty drug user and everything but he got out of it and he says i find that your prison was probably worse than mine of course i don't think so <laughs> Being behind <laughs> but i get the point he's making a good point and you know forget even those things what are the imprisonment okay of a woman who feels she's no good she can't be who she is, who ends up with a guy that beats the hell out of her for 18, 20 years, who doesn't know how to get away from these demeaning relationships or jobs. A lot of, there's a lot of ways people can be imprisoned. And it's fear. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, when you look at TV and you see commercials, oh, if you don't buy this, your life is never going to be complete. If you don't drink this soda, you're never going to look good. You know, it's just, it actually does the opposite. But we're so fear-based with sales. Yeah. On this podcast, I don't like to discuss religion or certain politics like, you know, I I believe in this and you believe in that. I believe in the soul and what I love that there is out there. I want to be able to reach out to people and say, hey, you're OK. We all have to go through this. And I think what you're doing is so incredible. I mean, I really do. And I've learned so much from you. And I actually would say, well, maybe I should ask you if I can help you out in any way. You're always welcome. There's a lot of opportunities. And again, welcome me back so we can talk some more. I, I, this was such a natural conversation. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to my, my hermana, you know, I'm sitting here talking to my sisters here, or, or my wife, Trini, who me and her have amazing conversations. So if you ever get to know her, you'll you're love her. She's really so let's do this again. And of course, yes. there is opportunities. I always tell people if they want, there is opportunities to help people behind bars. There are a lot of ways to go. I and mean, one of the ways is even just to help raise money to get books into the hands of people. There's a lot of things we could do. So yes. uh, we can talk more about that. But thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's so honorable what you're doing. It, it also makes me feel like I need to do more. <laughs> I want to say thank you for joining us on the podcast. And how can we, people reach you? And I know it's uh, tiachucha.com.org. 
And then also you can be at LuisJRodriguez.com. And believe it or not, me and my wife have a podcast too. It's called The Hummingbird Cricket Hour. Look it up online because when you say The Hummingbird Cricket Hour, the different it's on Apple Cast, it's on Lip Scenes, and a lot of other things. It comes up. So you can, that's how you can get in touch with us. Yes. And I'll also put it down in the notes so how they can reach you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.